0: Spacing. That's right, folks. Spacing of the rectum. That's the topic on today's GUcast. My name is Declan Murphy, urologist here at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. So if you have no idea what a rectal spacer is, well, stay tuned. You're about to find out. We had a very special guest visiting Australia this week. His name is Professor Peter Orio, a radiation oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And Peter's expertise is in the area of rectal spacing. Let me explain briefly what that is, if you have no idea. So when we deliver a significant dose of radiation to the prostate, obviously we want to kill the cancer. And although, of course, the technologies to deliver that radiation in an effective and safe way have greatly improved over the years, we still understand that a little bit of that radiation will get into adjacent organs, such as the rectum, which sits just behind the prostate. And that can lead to short-term or sometimes longer-term impact in a small number of patients. So, one of the ways in which we can reduce the risk of some radiation getting into the wall of the rectum and causing issues is by separating the prostate from the rectum. That's the idea of rectal spacing. Create a little space between the prostate and the rectum, so the dose of radiation that's getting into the prostate has less likelihood of getting into the wall of the rectum. And there are a number of different devices or techniques that can be used to do that. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're seeing an animation from a device called Barry Gel, which is one of these gel-like substances that can be injected down between the prostate and the rectum. And as you can see here, as the gel-like substance is being injected, the prostate is rising up off the wall of the rectum thereby, at least in theory, reducing the amount of radiation that will get into the rectum. And these devices, by and large, from quite good data we now have for a few years, seem to be very safe. It's a safe thing to do for the patient. So, let's moved to downtown Melbourne because Renu Epen, my co-host, and um, pottered down there to catch up with Peter before he was delivering an evening lecture, a lecture series put on by our friends at ICON Cancer Centre here in Melbourne. And she was joined also by Associate Professor Shankar Siva, friend of the podcast and clinical advisor indeed to GUcast on radiation oncology matters. Uh, they sat down with Peter to discuss this area of rectal spacing. I do hope that you enjoy.
1: All right. Well, hello there. We are at a beautiful spot in Melbourne. We're in Mateo's restaurant and we're here to celebrate a very special guest. But first of all, I've got with me Shankar Shiva, Professor of of Radiation Oncology (laughs) at Peter Mack. Hello, Shankar. Welcome back.
2: Hi, Renu. Thanks for having us here again. Always a welcome member of the GU cast. So happy to be here.
1: Absolutely. And today we are talking rectal spaces. So we have a very special guest uh, in Australia, in Melbourne. Uh, he's a professor of radiation oncology from Harvard in Boston. Welcome, Peter. Oh, Peter you. Orio. Yeah,
3: it's wonderful to be here, thank you.
1: And uh, is this your first trip to Australia?
3: It is, um, it's the first time. My brother-in-law is actually Australian, oh. and uh, from Sydney actually, and he's been in the United States now for about 15 years. And they make many trips back and forth, and it's the first time I could coordinate my schedule to actually get here. But fantastic! What a time.
1: Well, we're so thrilled to have you, and and you're such an expert in this field. So, we're, um, we're really excited to hear your views on this. But first, Shankar, um, you know, rectal spacing is kind of becoming increasingly a buzzword. Um, you know, we are moving more and more towards hyperfractionated radiation as as a standard of care, really. But the attention then goes to trying to minimise toxicity.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think we're getting such good outcomes in prostate cancer in general, no matter what the modality, whether that be surgery or radiation. And I think the focus should be on uh, sparing quality, uh, improving quality of life and sparing toxicities. So I'm really interested in hearing what Pete has to say about some of the work he's done in this yeah. space. Uh, I'm going to let
1: you take the microphone.
2: Am I? Okay. (laughs) Well, there you go. All right, Pete. Well, first of all, you've managed to spare some time. You showed us a beautiful picture from up north. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're coming to rainy Melbourne right now instead of being in (laughs) Queensland and the Great
3: Barrier Reef. You've had
2: some uh, fun up there while you're there?
3: Oh, it's great. Got to see the reef, got to go to the rainforest. Um, I mean, truly amazing country. so beautiful. Absolutely beautiful.
2: All right. Well, let's talk about where the field's going. You know, um, as a radiation oncologist, we're often using radiotherapy, but we're it's so typically using very long courses of radiation in the past, and more recently there's a change to using hypofractionated radiotherapy. So do you want to tell us your take on what hypofractionation involves and, and where are we at the moment?
3: Well, I mean, I think it you know, always the devil's in the details, but we know we have many randomized trials now, the CHIP trial, the RTOG trial, which basically is showing that we can treat patients quickly uh, and just as effectively, really, uh, making it really more convenient, going from 44 fractions to 28 and out of 20 fractions, if you will, um, just really takes the onus off a patient having to come back and forth to get daily radiation. Um, but we're not compromising control, not compromising outcomes, but we do have to pay more attention to toxicity. And I think that's where you sort of rectal spacing and just paying attention to the detail of margin and how we track patients through their treatments, how we're paying attention to the contours that we put together. Um, the you know, thing that always kind of fascinates me is when you look at both the hypo, the, um, the spacer trials, they have two hydrogel, and hyaluronic acid. Both of those trials used MR planning. And MR planning, only, all, almost by itself, helps to decrease some of the toxicity. As we start to realize that we're probably over-contouring the prostate by about 30% without an MRI, because it's very difficult on CT to see the apex and kind of go into the due diaphragm. And I think that's been, you know, kind of evidenced by the Mirage trial, which was an SBRT trial. CT-based planning versus MR planning, and the MR planning had a lot less toxicity. But with that said, you know, we're still giving dose, and we're still trying to give a lot of dose to the prostate, but we have organs at risk right next to it. And so how can we maybe minimize those toxicities by pushing that organ at risk further away?
2: All right, so let's dig into the weeds. I'm gonna ask you a question about the MRI planning, because one big bugbear of mine is obviously with CT planning, you have the, plan, the, the um, actual film and the shape of the anatomy that you're gonna plan with and treat with as a radiation oncologist at the time. When you're using an MRI, the rectal filling might be slightly different. There may be some variations yes. on the day. It's not the ideal solution all the time. I and mean, Do you have a view
3: on how oh, we work no, with absolutely, absolutely. I mean, a lot of it comes down to registration, right? So if you have a CT and MRI, which are done at different points in the day, it becomes very, very difficult to co-register because of rectal filling and bladder filling. Um, you know, so you have to be somewhat careful, but you can still get the length of the prostate, though. You can get a sense of, you know, where's that geodiaphragm? Where's that apex ending? And I think even with cognitive fusions, or just sort of paying attention. It's helpful. Um, what kind of blessed am I sent to have an MR-LINAC, um, an MR-Simulator, so you can kind of take some of that equation out or some of the, uh, the um, you know, issues with registration out of the equation. But with that said, not everybody has that. And uh, the reality is we have to make sure we bring things to everybody, not just to a few.
2: So in rural Melbourne, uh, Peter Mack, yeah. we, when we don't have these technologies, I mean, how do you find patients uh, addressing the idea of hypofractionation? Is you a surgeon? Do you, do you think patients are flocking to this as an option or do you find it more attractive?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's a, it's a shorter time frame, um, so it's it's much more um, convenient for patients to have that course of treatment than a lengthy nine, ten week course of radiation. So I, I find it's increasingly becoming standard of care. But the you know the toxicity, especially the long term to- right. toxicities, is really what we see, um, and that is the main concern. So that's why this this trial in particular was very interesting because even despite the advantages of MRI planning. There was a significant difference in toxicity, wasn't there?
3: Well, that's exactly it. So I guess we should probably go back in history. There's been two randomized trials with rectal spacers, mm. which have been published. You know, one used um, basically polyethylene glycol, um, which is they call hydrogel. But that was a conventionally fractionated trial, 44 gray, you know, over, I mean, 44 fractions, 79.2 gray. And it's kind of gentle. So there was a grade one toxicity benefit, but we didn't see really a grade two toxicity benefit. The second trial to market using hyaluronic acid it was basically a hypofractionated trial and it was designed purposely for that and I helped you know, design that trial, which we just published in JAMA Oncology just a few months ago, yeah. but basically it was 60 gray and 20 fractions. So you know, a very convenient schedule for patients, but the truth of the matter is we thought the toxicity rates could have been approaching 38% when you look at the CHIP trial, which basically established 60 gray and 20 fractions as a standard because it was not inferior to more conventionally fractionated radiation. What we found, though, is we had about a 14% grade 2 toxicity rate with the control group versus a less than 3% toxicity rate when we put the hyaluronic acid in or varigel in. And and that was interesting to us because obviously it was significantly significant, but it was a way of really engineering out that grade 2 toxicity. But, you know, people will say, well, it's a grade 2 toxicity, what does that matter? But the reality is it matters a lot to men. You know, in medical school, we were all taught grade three, grade four, grade five. That's problematic. Grade five is death. Big problem. Grade four is, you know, surgeries that are going to change a man's quality of life forever. But grade two, toxicity, you know, having bowel movements, you know, six to eight times over baseline, mucus lakes, bleeding, which requires intervention. You know, some of these guys in the acute periods don't want to leave their house. And I always think back when when COVID came to us, we were kind of isolated. We had to stay home. We stayed home for a period of time. And what happened to a lot of people? We put on weight, we became deconditioned, we weren't going to the gym. Now think about a man who you know, sort of has an ailment and usually an older man at that because you know, median age of diagnosis is 66 years of age, can they leave their house? Do they wanna leave their house? So these great two toxicities add up and it can add to sort of deconditioning. We know a day in the hospital takes a week to recover. Now imagine that you don't wanna leave your house for three months, I mean, that can be problematic. I mean, I know it's, you know, it's, it's you know, kind of maybe a little overly dramatic but the truth of the matter is guys don't want great two toxicities. And you know, with, you know, with, the, uh, with this trial, it's, it's very encouraging that we know this is a cost of doing business. This is a problem that you know acute toxicities predict late toxicities. If you don't have an acute toxicity, less likelihood of having a late toxicity. And you know, in a way, this has been, when it's done well, pushes the rectum away. It's getting very little dose, if any and then you don't have to worry about that toxicity into the future.
1: So that, that's an interesting point to me. So um, yeah. I, I'm interested to know, in this trial, what was the length of follow-up you had, and and are you basing the decrease in long-term toxicity on the fact that short-term toxicity well, is decreased? The, or?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So this, the the, publish of the, uh, the publishing of the trial is at six months, so it's mm-hmm. six-month data. Now, yeah. we're still at tripping. We're going to go all the way out to you know three to five years. but yeah. um, And we're going to have subsequent publications because in this trial, too, it allowed for higher risk men. So the first trial that was done with and glycol was with lower risk gentlemen. This trial we realized, well if we're gonna do hyperfractionation, well why not risk stratify to higher risk disease, meaning that men would be allowed to have hormonal therapy. So 31% of men in each arm did have ADT. And so as such, um, you know, basically it was up to grade Gleason uh, score seven, up to a PSA of 20, T1 or T2 disease. But I think it just kind of encompasses more, more men in the outcome know, kind of the trial, because we know we can do it safely in terms of not decreasing our overall survival um, you know, from other uh, trials, or basically about chemical controls the endpoint that they used. Yeah. But I, I think it's interesting, so it's just more encompassing. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: To dig into the weeds there in terms of grade two toxicity, um, you mentioned that is important, but generally speaking, grade two toxicities are transient, because they are managed they're manageable by medications. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think the benefit from an um, impact or cost-effectiveness type of benefit is for transient grade
3: 2 toxicities versus the impact of the uh... year? Well, it would be, be interested to see if we do see long-term toxicity, don't forget from the CHIP trial, which basically established 60 gray as a standard in um, 20 fractions, you know, they had very little two-year grade 2 toxicity, but at three years, it multiplied out to 15 to 20 percent, and of course, these are just points in time at looking. And but they exist. I mean, because the one thing that always, you know, kind of comes to mind is, you know, you talk to a lot of radiation oncologists, and we have, oh, we have IMRT, we have all these great technologies, we see very little toxicity. But my question is, how are you tracking your toxicity? Exactly. And up until a few years ago, I do not think I had any toxicity either, but us, our hospital at Harvard basically said, we're going to do patient report outcome measures. And so what happens is, my patients, they get iPads before they see me and follow up. They do all their toxicity assessments. And they go right to our medical record system and I look at it and I walk into the room. I'm like, Mr. Jones, how are you doing? And never believe, I'm doing great, Dr. Warrior. Thank you for all that you've done for me. And I'm like, but you know, it says here that you're yeah. bleeding. Oh, I don't want to bother you with that because you know you, you saved my life. I'm like, well, it's prostate cancer, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I think that's what it is. So until you kind of really look, you really don't know. You know, and oftentimes, we follow our patients for a certain period of time, and then another doctor takes over, and so that we may not really truly appreciate some of the long-term toxicities. And so when you're looking at the randomized data, you know they exist, and I think we probably need to report them, quite honestly, because I think sometimes it's embarrassing for men to report them, but usually in randomized trials, is you know, kind of a control mechanism, as we in our trial had, too, and so we'll kind of tease these things out, so we'll see if the short-term predicts for a long-term. Or reduction in short-term toxicity will hopefully predict for a reduction in long-term toxicity
1: and then there's the long long term yeah, that's right a, the 15 yeah. 20 years sort of i mean because the advantage of treating these men so well is that they are going to live
3: well that's exactly it i mean 20 years of yeah, on it, right yeah so. right um and you ha- yeah you have a long time to manifest particular toxicities. absolutely and we get older too and that's the thing that we you know sort of forget how we can manage toxicities when we're younger are different than how we're going to manage toxicities as we age. I mean, we're, you know, kind of mechanical in a way, and a lot of our uh, sphincters and everything else are mechanical, right? Over time, they do wear out, unfortunately. Yeah. And as the, you know, the short-term hits that we cause, are they going to lead to long-term problems? Yeah.
1: Just going back to a little bit of the basics, Peter, can you explain to our audience the difference between a hydrogel spacer and a hyaluronic acid spacer?
3: Yeah, so hydrogel, and I think you're just maybe... Uh, just say the trade name is Space O-A-R and that was the first one to market published in 2015 and the truth of the matter is I worked with Eichmenix which was the you know sort of the preparative of that helped with the trials and everything else now bring it to market so polyethylene glycol is a space where basically it's almost like a polymer mm-hmm. it takes two liquids it goes into a wide connected syringe and it accelerates and it becomes firm 8 to 15 seconds later and so what you do is you hydro dissect to try to create a space because Water itself doesn't have any lifting power, so you have to put a little bit of saline in there just to kind of create a channel. The problem is that saline doesn't always break up the adhesions, uh, which are caused by biopsy. But once you get your needle in, then you basically pull down and push it on the plunger, um, the liquid's going to go shooting in, and then it's also the path of least resistance. So fluids you know, flow by the path of least resistance, yeah. and this is something we knew. You know, but we we didn't have anything better, right? So it's one of those things that hey, that's the first thing. Had a randomized trial, and we thought, hey, we can really start to There's reduce a mechanical toxicity. Space, mechanical right. space, Mechanical yeah. space is good. I mean, people are using blood products and blood patches before that.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, but then you know, polymerizes, and then you it you know, kind of goes where it is, and you kind of get what you get, which is fine. Um, you know, we went back and we looked at the data. We had basically forty nine percent of the time was symmetric, right down the middle. Fifty one percent of the time it was sort of not, but it was what we had. Yeah. And so hyaluronic acid, which is Baragel, which is the second trial that just came to market, you know, the one that was just published in JAMA Oncology in February, um, basically is hyaluronic acid, which is a naturally occurring substance in the body. So, you know, kind of in that knee joints, things like that, Ooh. gives it a bounce. And the truth of the matter is, bear, matter is bear, Joe was actually kind of rustling, so like a facial filler. So that's how yeah. like you kind of put on your lips and, you know, kind of in the, you know, get rid of the wrinkles here and everything else. It's a great
1: marketing yeah, tool you know, for it's that. Open, <laughs> but
3: they thought, well, if, the, if this has lifting power
1: Absolutely. and it opens
3: up a space, why not try to put it between the prostate and the ring? Yeah. And the cool thing that I thought, and because, you know, after augmentic was bought by Boston Scientific, and, you know, the FDA said, hey, listen, you know, this, this is kind of flowing from various places. I'm like, ooh, we probably need maybe version 2.0. Uh, you know, what else is there? And I was approached to say, hey, from the, uh, these folks who are doing HA or hyaluronic acid, would you write the randomized trial? Can we test it to see if it's going to be safe. And I'm fine with anything that's on a randomized trial because yeah. if, you know, if it's on a randomized trial, you can determine whether or not there's going to be benefit and safety. Yeah. And so we wrote the trial. So with gel or hyaluronic acid, when you're putting it in, it's going in as a gel. You don't have to hydro dissect, because it has lifting power. Yeah. And essentially, where you place it, it stays. And you can see it very well in the ult- ultrasound. It's very hypoechoic And so now, you're putting the gel in, and you can see where you're putting the gel in. And you can shape it, and you can sculpt it, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And so now I have you know, very, very symmetric implants. And in the clinical trial, greater than 95% of the implants are symmetric. Mm-hmm. But you can put it where it is. The other thing that I thought was interesting too is, as a radiation oncologist, I mean, sometimes our PTV, or the planning target volume, includes the seminal vesicles. And so sometimes you need to, you know, kind of push the seminal vesicles outside of the radiation field as well. And what you can, with space where you really couldn't, because where you put it, it was going to flow, with this, it's just more sculptable. So you can yeah. kind of place it where you want to place it. It stays, it stays put. And it gives you a great lift, and it gives you great separation. And that's probably why we were able to find the grade 2 toxicity benefit, too, because we are actually, you know, kind of pushing out the entire rectum. I must
2: say from my point of view as well, like being from backwater Melbourne, having some uh, uh, lepidol or some um, in the newer version of the hydrogel uh, is actually quite useful for the demarcation. Did you find that as well? I guess you probably don't need it with MRI guidance. Well,
3: yeah, with space review, that was interesting. I did the cadaver studies with space review just for, you know, full disclosure. The issue I found with space review is there's a lot of back pressure on that needle. Um, there's a lot of back pressure and I'm a, I'm a relatively big guy I know mean, I'm sitting down and I'm slouching <laughs> a little bit. I'm a relatively big guy and I always found it very difficult to really plunge that, um, that um, syringe. And my, the other studies, the first couple I did, they were really honestly in left field. And then it was like, well, you know, the view is in it, so we basically put contrast in it, so mm-hmm. iodine in the pig. The FDA didn't re- require a randomized trial and I think that's kind of interesting. Because it's a medical device, and you know iodine is very ubiquitous. And we use iodine everywhere we contrast, and it's safe. You know, just so we're just going to put some iodine in the hydrogel and move forward. Yeah, you can see it very well in the CT. The issue, though, that I found, and we've abandoned our practice to be quite honest, it was such that we clearly, really, really we weren't controlling the needle very well. We had very little needle discipline because we had to squeeze so hard, or sometimes move it with the palm of our hand, the needle would dive down and you know, go places we didn't absolutely want it to go. Uh, but you can see it. There's no doubt you can see it, but be careful what you go look for because sometimes you see it in places you really wish it wasn't.
2: Yeah. I think one, one point of practice that might be different for us in Australia is that a lot of our surgeons are using transperineal biopsy, yeah. so that layer of fibrosis we don't typically tend to see around uh, our practices. Yeah. Do you have any other field reports from within the forest, like what's happened, <laughs> any tips for people who are using other hydrogel or hyaluronic acid?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's like everything else. It's a learning curve with anything. You have to get good at what you do but you have to assess what you do afterwards. And the one thing that I find in the United States at least, you know, oftentimes, you know, a lot of radiation oncologists will implant, um, you know, sort of aerogel or space around the United States, but more so the urologists. And sometimes the learning loops aren't closed down very well because the urologists will put it in for the radiation oncologist. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's perfect and sometimes it's not. But the radiation oncologist sometimes doesn't want to call and say, hey, listen, you know, I know you did your best, but it kind of went over here and maybe we can, you know, work on it better. And if you're not looking at your outcomes, you don't know your outcomes. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that you know I, I say for anybody who's doing it, you know, a space or a gel, hyaluronic, you know, basically um, hydrogel or hyaluronic acid, is you really have to kind of look to see where you put, it. because at the end of the day, we want to do what's right for the patients. You know, we all become patients, like it or not. And at the end of the day, we need to do the right thing, and we no one wants to do anything that's suboptimal moral physicians type A personalities, you really want to get this to where it's supposed to go. So the, the one piece of advice, and the one thing that you see in the field, is just close down that learning curve. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, like with the barrage on my, um, because you can see it on the ultrasound. I mean, what space you can't see on the ultrasound because it becomes, you know, liquidy, and it, it just kind of occludes the image. With the barrage, my urologist will take a quick snapshot and send it to me. Now, I put a lot in myself, but my urologist put a lot in too. And I can see that it's, you know, symmetric. I know where to go find it, you know, it's pretty easy. But we sense. all kind of know that, you know, we did a good job and then afterwards I'll call and say, hey, great placement, and this is what the symmetry looked like. And if there's something that, you know, with hydrogel or hyaluronic acid, if it's suboptimal, I'll take a quick screenshot and send it over and say, you know, is there anything different than this? Because I think what we're finding, you mentioned transparent no biopsy. Biopsies cause fibrosis, hmm. they cause adhesions. And you know, a barrier you can lift up that adhesion, but you know, you have to be careful too. With space worse it's hard to lift that adhesion up sometimes. Um, just because it's just saline, and might, if you hit an adhesion, fluid, you know, papillus resistance is going to flow this way. And so we start to have to learn, well, how many biopsies does this gentleman have? Was it transrectal? Was it transparent nail? So I think that's going to help refine your technique in putting all this uh, material in.
1: Sounds like a great relationship between urologists and radiation. We have that same thing here. Cool.
3: Right?
1: <laughs> so Shankar, are you, um, is, is there a way that you select patients for this, or are you recommending it for all patients who have hyperfractionated radiation?
2: Yeah, I think, I think so. The, um, the technology is really useful for us. We have some limitations on insurance, actually, in Australia, so that is a, a challenge. So not every patient can actually access that. Uh, but for the patients that can, I think it's very useful, particularly if you're going to use more advanced techniques, hyperfractionation, SBRT, for example, it's kind of necessary.
1: And one other interesting application that I think potentially rectal spaces have is use and salvage surgery. Um, I mean, we've we've had a handful of cases done by one of our colleagues, Professor Nathan Lorenchuk, who we may hear from later on, um, and he's used that in in, the, in a salvage prostatectomy setting, and, and it's, it seems to have some promise there. Do you have any experience with your urologists?
3: Yeah, so we do sell a lot of salvage work, so primary salvage, which is interesting. So if they recur after radiation, and I do a lot of brachytherapy, I put it in before I do my salvage implants if they had a beam first. But post-prostatectomy radiation salvage is interesting too. It's actually, a has been about I think 90 cases now in Australia. In fact, I'm on um, Friday, I'm going to be going to an operating room to kind of see this firsthand myself. But I just for an FDA trial um, to do salvage radiation, so we can do this in the United States on trial. It'll be multinational. We'll have you know, some of the Australians participate as well. And make sure that we can do it, you know, decrease the dose of the rectum, but also make sure there's no adverse events, make sure it's safe, and, of course, that we don't compromise um, um, any potential you know kind of oncological outcome <clears throat> Now we put guardrails around this we have to have psma pets whether you like just to make sure there's no local recurrences. they have to have to have intrafascial dissections so you don't have to, you know fascial layers mostly intact so this you know if there was a tumor cell it would still not be in the perirectal fat because you wouldn't use it for t4 disease because with t4 disease the rectum becomes part of your target okay. um, but yeah no i think it's it's interesting and the reality is and you know we can attest to it post prostatectomy radiation fields can get much bigger than primary radiation fields so more of the rectum can be exposed so I think it's an exciting uh, avenue to explore
1: absolutely well we could talk about this forever but uh Peter is going to give a fantastic talk uh over dinner so we don't want to make him too late for that Peter Oreo, Shankar Shiva wonderful to have you we hope you enjoy the rest of your trip uh, and we're looking forward to hearing more from you
3: thank you very much great thank to be here
0: so there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that chat between Renu, Shanker, and Peter Oreo. I certainly learned a lot about rectal spacing. I think, why not? Seems like a good idea to me. We'll include a link in the show notes to the randomized control trial recently published in JAMA Oncology, uh, which Peter discussed uh, in this episode of GU Cast. That's all we've got time for today. Do stay tuned. We'll be back soon with some more great GU Oncology content. Thanks very much, and goodbye.